welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliotti, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 7, Upon My House Shall It Begin. The uh, topic tonight is something that's not very desirable to speak about, but I think we need to have knowledge of what the scriptures are actually saying and uh, not just pass over passages that are very difficult to to read and to to digest to understand they are there they're prophesied and so they're part of the whole milieu not just the good news but it's also bad news but in the end it's all good because as I mentioned before because we rise above the evil and the evil can sometimes be very close to home. And that's what this evening's lecture, um, it's, it's a collusion between the political and the ecclesiastical that we'll be discussing. On my house shall it begin. What is that all about? DNC 112, verily, verily, I say unto you, darkness covers the earth and gross darkness the minds of the people and all flesh has become corrupt before my face. It reminds you of before the flood. Behold, vengeance cometh speedily upon the inhabitants of the earth, a day of wrath, a day of burning, a day of desolation, of weeping, and of mourning, and of lamentation, and as a whirlwind it shall come upon all the face of the earth, says the Lord. And we discussed in our first session how the, the apostasy of the Lord's own people are the catalyst based on patterns of the scriptures in the past. And so it is here, and that's why the connection is made right here. And upon my house shall it begin, and from my house it shall go forth, said the Lord. First among those among you, said the Lord, who have professed to know my name, and have not known me, and have blasphemed against me in the midst of my house, says the Lord. So it's not everybody across the board, but there will be some at that time among us who have professed to know his name. And that is in parallel with blasphemy. And they have not known him, and that is in parallel here with blasphemy, so that the blasphemy has something to do with professing to know his name and not knowing him. Now notice, know my name, but have not known me. So the name in Hebrew, in the prophetic concept, is, is um, that you know somebody personally. So if you know his name, you know him personally. It's not, it's not just you know about him or you happen to know one of his names because he has many names. So the, the, the converse of it is that they haven't known him and yet they say they have. And that is the blasphemy because it's leading people astray. That is part of the blasphemy. Let's look at other definitions of blasphemy as well. Matthew 15. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. and They defile a man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil murders, adulteries, fornications, stealing, bearing false witness, and blasphemies, these are what defile a man. A little chiasm there, ABA. But notice that blasphemy is among all the other really serious sins. 2 Timothy 3. Listen know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, prideful, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Well, we know all of that's true among the Gentiles anyway, among a lot of the Gentiles, but who's Paul talking about? 
it seems like he's talking about our own, um, I mean, the Christians of, of our day. Ungrateful, unholy, without natural affection, covenant breakers, means that they make covenants and then they break them. False accusers, unbridled, savage, despisers of those that are good because they put them to shame. They make them uncomfortable. Traitors, betraying them. Many shall hate and betray one another, Matthew 24. Who to? Well, to the authorities, of course. Which authorities? Well, political and ecclesiastical both. It's all tre treachery. Reckless, heedless, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness. So these are spiritual people or people belonging to a religion or a church. And since he's speaking specifically of Christians, then in our day that would be us. But denying the power thereof. And we talked about denying the power thereof. When you're not based in the truth but in precepts of men, then the Spirit cannot work through you because the Spirit cannot testify of precepts of men or untruths. From such turn away, for of that kind are those who creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away by diverse lusts. Why? Because when you are in, into something other than the truth and you follow it with, with zeal, then what happens? You lose light and pretty soon you're in bondage to all kinds of sins, including lusts. Ever learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Because they're still religious, they're still zealous scholars, so to speak. As, as Yannis and Yambres withstood Moses, so these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds and reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs was also. So at some point, all of this is going to be exposed, and not to their liking, of course. But in the meantime, you are dealing with these kinds of people as a test for you personally. How are you going to respond? Luke 22. The men who held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote you? And many other things did they blasphemously speak against him. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and scribes came together and led him to their council. And this they will do, Jesus said, to those who follow Jesus. They will do it especially in the last days, as Isaiah teaches in chapter 66, when, when, uh, and other chapters, 56 and 61, when hurled insults would be directed at his, his, his servants. And notice now that the elders and the chief priests and the scribes came together and there we see wickedness combining against good. And it always combines. And that's part of what we're, we'll be discussing today. A combination. Uh, a secret combination. And sometimes a public combination. But definitely, behind the scenes, there's a lot of stuff going on. And it's finally the ultimate form of apostasy to institutionalize persecution, as we saw in Spencer's vision, Visions of Glory, in the people of Tahiti, when wickedness becomes institutionalized. But of course, these people are not aware of that. They don't think that they're a secret combination, or they don't think that they're fighting against Zion or persecuting the saints. 
To them, they are the ones who are in the right. Matthew 23, when Jesus spoke to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So here we have then, in spite of all that was going on, in way of opposition and persecution of the believers in Jesus' day, and also in the days of the apostles, what is the, what is the response? Well, if those who are persecuting are called of God, then you still do what they say. How's that for a paradox? You still respect them, in spite of, in spite of the huge contradiction. They sit in Moses' seat, or in other words, they are teaching the law of Moses that Moses instituted, including the covenant, the Sinai covenant, and what it means to be a people of God and to keep his commandments. All that they bid you observe, therefore, that observe and do, but don't do according to their works, for they say, but do not. They bind them. They bind heavy burdens, grievous to be borne, and lay, lay them on men's shoulders while they themselves won't move them with one of their fingers. For the works they do are to be seen of men. They love the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, or Master, Master. Or President, President, <laughs> closer to home. Matthew 23, don't you be called rabbi or master, for one is your master, Christ, and you are all brethren. And that's how it is in Judaism. Mostly the rabbis there are just part of the bunch. They're, they don't sit in special seats. They are just like one of their students. And don't call any man on the earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven independent above every creature below the celestial kingdom, right? No, um, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And if he is your servant, of course, he would act like a servant rather than act like somebody above you. Whoever exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor allow those who are entering to go in. That is a very amazing idea because they get to the point where nobody is really attaining the goal of the gospel in our terms. Salvation, yes, but exaltation? What does exaltation involve? Well, you, according to the terms of the Davidic covenant, you become a proxy savior, a temporal savior and all that that involves. And you proceed fur further to the Abrahamic covenant until you gain an exaltation on the level of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where you inherit a posterity as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens for multitude. In other words, you become a god because God's posterity is as numerous as the sands of the sea and as the stars of the heavens for multitude. But they're not into this. And if anybody even whispers it, then they don't allow you. They come down on you. And that seems to be the pattern in our day. If anybody even breathes of something beyond the casual, superficial, basic gospel, they seem to be the subject of persecution. So they neither go in themselves nor allow those who are entering to go in because if they did go in themselves, they would certainly allow others because they'd know the process. They would know the opposition involved and they would not be part of the opposition or make themselves that.
13:16. At that day when the Gentiles shall sin against this gospel and shall reject the fullness of my gospel and shall be... Now, it's speaking about us, not the non-Mormons. Because look also in 35:20, which says, after they have received the fullness of the gospel, then they reject it. We also saw that in 2 Nephi 28, where there are seven curses pronounced upon those in Zion, seven woes, and in the end, as a people, they deny Christ. It's a process, and it's gradual, it's almost imperceptible. It's certainly imperceptible to those who are part of that process of apostatizing over several generations, as it is in chapter 1 of Isaiah, and also in Spencer's book, Visions of Glory. It's over, it's over a couple of generations. And shall be lifted up in the pride of their hearts above all nations, more or less like the Zoramites, and above all people of the whole earth, and shall be filled with all manner of lyings and of deceits and of mischiefs, all manner of hypocrisy and murders and priestcraft, because that's where it all goes in the end. Apostasy runs its course, and the more people persecute, the more they want to persecute. They get locked in to this mode of persecution. If you're a murderer, you'll want to murder again, because you know you've reached you know, past the point of no return. And priestcrafts and whoredoms of secret abominations. And if they shall do all these things and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, behold, said the Father, I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. And then will I remember my covenant to have made unto my people, O house of Israel, and I will bring my gospel unto them. Because the house of Israel is defined in the Book of Mormon as the natural lineage of Israel and nobody else. Look for yourself and see. Isaiah 9, Jehovah will cut off from Israel head and tail, palm top and reed in a single day. That's the day of judgment. It's still future. The elders or notables are the head. The prophets who teach falsehoods are the tail. There again you have the political and the ecclesiastical on a par. What's going on in the one is going on in the other throughout Isaiah. The leaders of these people have misled them and those who are led are confused. There is a void. There is a void and people are looking for answers and they're not getting it from, the, from where they ought to be getting it. Let's look in, book of, in the Book of Mormon at some types and shadows for what is going to happen to us because the whole Book of Mormon is a series of types and shadows based on the principle that what has been shall be, which they borrow from Isaiah, was that they know that that's how Isaiah predicts and prophesies. And that is the criterion for determining what they will include in the Book of Mormon from what they will exit out or de exclude the less than a hundredth part of what they could have written is in there. So these are very specific criteria. And the Hebrew mindset is typological. Types from the past. It came to pass in the 20th and 9th year there began to be some disputings among the people, 35-6. This is before the coming of Christ. And some were lifted up into pride and boastings because of their exceeding great riches, yea, even unto great persecutions. Now, I think persecutions can happen, you know, directly, or you actually persecute someone directly, but there's also indirect persecution. I call that passive persecution. Just because, you know, a certain way you act, and people around you feel put down just by the way you act around them. Because they know more, because they have more money, because they dress better, you know what I'm saying? For there were many merchants in the land and also many liars. So a lot of entrepreneurs, right? And people who were uh, feeding off that. Liars, and many officers. 
the bureaucracy, I guess. And people began to be distinguished by ranks, according to the riches and their chances for learning. Yea, some were ignorant because of their poverty, and others did receive great learning because of their riches. Well, I've seen men who are poor who have amazing spiritual insights uh, versus the ones who think they know it all, who, um, you know, are stuck on certain ways of, of um, kind of linear ways of looking at the scriptures in a very superficial way, not wanting to go deeper because they might learn something or they may have to change. Some were lifted up in pride and others were exceedingly humble. Some did return railing for railing, while others would not would receive railing and persecution, all manner of afflictions, and would not turn and revile again, but were humble and penitent before God. Now, have you ever been railed upon? I mean, maybe close to home, one of your family, but um, have you ever been railed upon just because you're different in your beliefs? Because, because you study Isaiah. Uh, people are immediately suspicious when you study Isaiah. Who do you think you are? You know, the prophet will tell us everything. No, the prophet has said, search the scriptures. Jesus said, search the scriptures. Commands us to search Isaiah. So you do that, but, you know. So have, have you ever been railed upon? If so, what did that feel like? You felt like just, you know, answering back and letting them have it kind of thing, you know. Making short work of their accusations. But to say nothing... You know, to say, okay, this is the Lord testing me. How am I going to respond? Can you take ownership of the people who are persecuting you and say, it's all good. Thank you for persecuting me because now I can rise above that and in your mind, right? Now I can rise above that and you're giving me a lesson here of how I can grow. You know, and so you, you, you totally transform the, the occasion into a learning experience into a purifying and sanctifying experience. And that's what these people were doing. You read behind the, the lines and in between the lines and, you know, for them not to answer and for them to be humble and penitent before God, they were not defending themselves. They were still penitent. Penitent means in a, in a mode of repenting. Unless there, be, there began to be great inequality in all the land insomuch the church began to be broken up. Yea, insomuch that in the thirtieth year the church was broken up in all the land, save it were among a few of the Lamanites who were converted unto the true faith. Now think of that as a type and shadow, because the house of Israel is going to come back into the gospel at the very time that the gospel is turning away from the Gentiles because of their apostasy, and therefore the gospel is turning back to those now who will now believe. And they would not depart from it, for they were firm and steadfast and immovable, willing with all diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. Now the cause of this iniquity of the people was this. Satan had great power under the stirring up of the people to do all manner of iniquity and the puffing them up with pride, tempting them to seek for power and authority and riches and the vain things of the world. A lot of wannabes here. And their hearts were set upon those things. And thus did Satan lead away the hearts of the people to do all manner of iniquity. Therefore they had enjoyed peace but a few years. How quickly they departed from it. And we say, you know, well, we don't have any iniquity. This whole culture is just, you know, immersed and saturated with iniquity. 
And you just see it everywhere. It's just over the top, wherever you look. And you need to go back to a third world country, which this, this, this country is going to become very soon, to see the difference. And to see how people can live with nothing, still be happy, still be true. Oh no, that can't happen to us. That'll never happen to us. Excuse me, what are the scriptures saying? Aren't you reading them? And thus, in the commencement of the 30th year, the people having been delivered up for the space of a long time to be carried about by the temptations of the devil because they're rejecting truth, rejecting truth, persecuting. And eventually, that just takes hold of you and doesn't let you go. It's called the bands of iniquity. Whithersoever he desired to carry them and to do whatsoever he desired that they should do. And thus, in the commencement of this, the 30th year, they were in a state of awful wickedness. Now, they did not sin ignorantly, for they knew the will of God concerning them, for it had been taught unto them. Therefore, they did willingly rebel against God. That's Isaiah, Isaiah's point also, chapter 1, in the very first verses. And when you sin ignorantly, you know, then it's over for you. When you sin, I mean, when you sin knowingly, then it's over for you. Like Jesus said to the uh, Pharisees, or, or was it Paul, what, or was it Peter, what that you had done it ignorantly, but you did it knowingly. And so, you know, they, then the Romans came and, and took away the Jewish nation. There are so many types and shadows. If you will just look at scriptural history, you'll see it's all pointing to our day. <clears throat> what has been shall be. God orchestrated our history, the humanity's history, in such a way that what happened in the past it all typifies the end time. Oh no, that can't happen to us. Well, we'll see. And there began to be men inspired from heaven and sent forth, standing among the people in all the land, preaching and testifying boldly of the sins and iniquities of the people, and testifying unto them concerning the redemption which the Lord would make for his people, or in other words, the resurrection of Christ, and they did testify boldly of his death and sufferings. This is before his coming. And then the end time, of course, is going to be the same. There will be those people declaring his second coming. Now there were many of the people who were exceedingly angry because of those who testified of these things. And those who were angry were who? Chiefly the chief just judges, the political, and they who had been high priests, ecclesiastical, and liars. And all those who were lawyers were angry with those who had testified of these things. Because the testimony of the truth, you know, a lawyer, think of a, a lawyer's mindset, you know. If he's on the wrong side defending iniquity, of course he's going to be angry at the truth. It's his mode of operation. He gets his money that way. So this is very close to home. You see why the church will be broken up. And now there were many of those who testified other things pertaining to Christ, who testified boldly, who were taken and put to death secretly by the judges. So there you have your secret combination, the collusion between the political and ecclesiastical, doing things underhand, out of sight of the people, resorting even to murder. As Jesus said, they will kill you and think they do God a service, Matthew 24 that the knowledge of their death came not unto the governor of the land until after their death. Now behold, this was contrary to the laws of the land, 
that any man should be put to death except they had power from the governor of the land. Therefore a complaint came up unto the land of Zarahemla to the governor of the land against these judges who had condemned the prophets of the Lord unto death. So these men were prophets, the ones who were testifying. And of course, a prophet is anybody who has the testimony of Jesus. So it depends what, how you define prophet there. Not according to the law. And it came to pass that they were taken and brought before the judge to be judged of their crime which they had done according to the law which had been given by the people. So there was still some lawfulness. It came to pass that those judges had many friends and kindreds. And the remainder, yet even almost all the lawyers and the high priests, did gather themselves together and unite with the kindreds of those judges who were to be tried according, according to the law. And they did enter into a covenant one with another, even unto that covenant which was given by them of old, which covenant was given and administered by the devil to combine against all righteousness. Well, in the Book of Mormon, you, when you see, in the, speaking of the end time, when you see attempts to set up a king in the land, and also secret combinations coming into, to, into play, that is also the time when the Lord's covenants are taking place. Like the covenant, art thou a brother? Remember? We discussed it in, in class. That is also the time when righteousness rises above the evil. It has to. If you stay with the Lord's program, you have to rise above the evil and know how to deal with it all and learn how to deal with it all. Therefore they did combine against the people of the Lord and enter into a covenant to destroy them and to deliver those who were guilty of murder from the grasp of justice, which was about to be administered according to the law. And they did set at defiance the law and the rights of their country. It kind of reminds me of judges legislating from the bench. You know, it's, we're, we're part right there, I would say. And they did set at defiance, etc. And they did covenant one with another to destroy the governor and to establish a king over the land, that the land should no more be at liberty, but should be subject unto kings. And we're heading there. We're very close to it, I believe. Behold, this land, 2 Nephi 10, shall be a land of thine inheritance of the Nephites. And the Gentiles shall be blessed upon the land, that's us, and this land shall be a land of liberty unto the Gentiles, and there shall be no kings upon the land who shall raise up unto the Gentiles. So there's the reminder. And I will fortify this land against all other nations, and he that fighteth against Zion shall perish. For he that raises up a king against me shall perish. So they're fighting against Zion. For I, the Lord, the King of Heaven, will be their king. That's under the terms of the Sinai Covenant. And I will be a light unto them forever that hear my words. If you trust in it, he will. If you, don't, if you fear and don't think so, don't believe it, that's an act of faith. And if you will hold fast to that promise, he will be your light. It will shine right out of you. And others will pick it up and look to you as a light. Wherefore, for this cause that my covenants may be fulfilled, which I have made unto the children of men, that I will do unto them while they are in the flesh, I must needs, needs destroy the secret works of darkness and of murders and of abominations. When does he do that? Well, when they deal the death, when they seek to deal the death blow to God's people, when they threaten the righteous with death and murder, 
then what happens? I have to remind you that the terms of your covenant with the Lord come into play so that the curses of your covenant with the Lord come upon the enemies who are threatening you. That's the principle on which the great reversal happens. That is when he destroys the secret works of darkness and of murders and abominations. And not until then. So it all has to come to this head. And so in a way, it's all good. Like I said, thank you for your opposition. Thank you for your persecution. Thank you for your death threats. Thank you for whatever. It doesn't matter because these are all stepping stones, or can be, toward your spiritual progression, toward your purification and sanctification, toward releasing generations from the bands of iniquity that they've passed down to this generation, toward a lot of things. This is a transition generation. Wherefore, he that's fighting against Zion, both Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, because you're going to apostatize the same as anybody else. You're not immune. Bond and free, <coughs> free both male and female, shall perish for they are they who are the whore of all the earth. For they who are not for me are against me, said the Lord. So the whore of all the earth includes those among us who apostatize, who end up fighting against Zion because we descend, 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 until finally we're part of that group. Without even our being aware of it sometimes. Isaiah 29. These are just a few verses from Isaiah, but there are many others. Um... We discussed some of from Ezekiel 34, um, Jeremiah 23, where the pastors, the pastors of the flock, you know, are doing their thing, and then the Lord's response is to turn it all around. Woe to those who contrive to hide their schemes from Jehovah! They work in the dark, thinking, "Who will see us? Who will know?" That's what secret combinations do. What a contradiction you are! Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Shall what is made say of its maker, he did not make me? Or a work of its designer, he doesn't understand? In other words, they're putting themselves in the place of God and calling the shots. Because God is on our side. You know, They're deceiving themselves. They're actually fighting against God. 32. The godless shall no longer be regarded as noble, which they are now. Nor rogues considered respectable, which they are now. Or at that day they will be. They're passing themselves off as having known the Lord, which they have not known, and so forth. For the, the godless utter blasphemy by saying that. Their heart ponders impiety. What? How to preach hypocrisy and preach perverse things. How to practice hypocrisy and preach... This is a lot of alliteration there. PR. How to practice hypocrisy and preach perverse things concerning Jehovah. Things that are not getting people anywhere, not feeding the flock. Feeding yourself. Leaving the hungry soul empty, depriving the thirsty soul of drink. And rogues scheme by malevolent means and insidious devices to ruin the poor. This is the political now, or temporal at least. And with false slogans and accusations to denounce the needy. Hear the word of the Lord or Jehovah, you scoffers who preside over these people in Jerusalem, or where the Lord's people are, headquartered, as a, as a code name. You have supposed by taking refuge in deception and hiding behind falsehoods to have covenant with death or reach an understanding with Sheol. And we've talked about some of these scriptures before and have covered them, but I'm discussing them again in this particular context of collusion between the political and ecclesiastical. A covenant with death 
in Isaiah's context of chapter 28, which is addressed to Ephraim, specifically, is between the political and the, and the ecclesiastical. And that whole section, chapters 28 through 31, it's that way. You have the political and the ecclesiastical. And now we come to the dream of the daughter of Zion. It's available on the internet. I guess if you look under some keywords. And this graphically shows the collusion to such a degree that it just ties in with all the other scriptures that we have read and that we will read after this. And this is the dream. There was a room, a simple room. Simple room means, you know, humble, humble origins or humble circumstances. And on the table, a brown handmade basket with six large eggs, three white and three brown. A young woman was standing beside the table and gazing into the basket. I could see through her eyes, so in the dream, I was the woman. Just in the dream. So she could perceive what, you know, was happening. The woman's name was the daughter of Zion. She took half of the eggs out of the basket on the table and put them in her own basket, two white and one brown. This reminds me of, you know, of the, of the wise and foolish virgins. You know, some are wise, some are foolish. So she identifies with half of them, let's say. Suddenly, into the small room burst a man of large stature dressed as a king. He had on a black apron, a long black cloak, and a large golden crown upon his head. This man stormed up to the woman and yelled at her, mocking her with the name, mocking her name with the tone of his voice. Daughter of Zion, he then roughly pushed her into the nearby chair, and a searing pain went down Zion's spine as her back scraped hard against the wood of the chair. So what is all that about? Well, obviously, it's a man dressed as a king, so it's political. But he has on a black apron, so it's ecclesiastical. And a long black cloak, but he's of the wrong side. He's of the dark side. A large golden crown upon his head, just as you read in the prophet's visions of, of the Antichrist types who have crowns on their heads. So he rules over somebody, maybe many, and he persecutes the woman and mocks her and accuses her. So they are in the persecuting role. So when, because the ones who persecute are never in the right, right? They're the ones that are in the wrong. It was then that I noticed a baby. The king man also noticed this child and snatched it up and threw it forcefully into Zion. She gathered up the naked newborn boy and held him close to her breast and gathered the folds of her dress around him to cover and protect him. All the while, the dark king looked angrily at the mother and her child. He mocked and uttered degrading words upon these two. Well, there you have the birth pangs of the Messiah. When the Lord's people Zion go into travail. Remember Egypt and the deliverance from bondage? But the Lord sent Moses as a deliverer. So here, in the birth pangs of the Messiah's phenomenon, she gives birth to a deliverer. It's the same woman in the book of Revelation who gives birth to the male child who is taken up to God and to his throne because he comes back from there and he mocks her and degrades her. The king man then looked into the basket that was Zion's and saw her three eggs. He told the woman that all his Israel are entitled to the eggs and how dare she take any of them. So he was laying claim to the whole plan. He was basically saying, this is my plan. Israel is my Israel. He was usurping the role of of Christ. And how dare she take any of them? 
that they themselves first inspect each egg for any flaws in the shell. In other words, the outward appearance is, the outward appearance is important to these people. Keeping politically correct, you know, I mean, they keep only the best and most beautiful eggs, the rest they discard. Because when they, when they get rid of you, who cares for you after that? They've blacklisted you. The king man then took Zion's three eggs and said he was going to pronounce a blessing upon the daughter of Zion. He then crushed the three eggs and took the three yolks and slammed them upon her head, egg in your face, all the while laughing and mocking her. Zion just remained silent and held her baby even closer to her body to protect him. The king asked Zion by what method she selected the eggs in her basket. Zion responded that she didn't expect any of them. She just took them randomly, even the flawed ones, as that is what, as a, as what is on the inside that matters. The king man then forced Zion to her feet, tightening his grip immensely upon her arm, and pushed her into a nearby house. Now imagine what this house symbolizes. I'm not going to say more about it, but imagine what this house symbolizes. Think of Joseph Smith's dream of the barn that he had in Kirtland. It's one of the last dreams that he had. I could feel the evil intent of this king to rape and then kill the woman and her child in the secrecy of the house. As I entered with the king into the house, which had a gray hue inside, what does gray symbolize? Neither black nor white, right? Anything goes. You can justify anything. I saw a huge sharp knife that had been prepared for the murder lying amid all the dirt and the mud on the floor. Well, you know, this king man now is, is part of the satanic cult because they do ritual murders. I held the tiny man-child tightly in my arms. The king was breathing out hate, envy, and lust with every evil and malicious breath. On the table within that house were the remnants of a meal. There were morsels of meat and bread. What does that signify? It's a time of scarcity. Why? Because it's covenant curses coming upon what he represents, right? So there's not enough to eat at that point in time, and he's eating leftovers. And anyways, leftovers is also symbolic of what? It's not, if, when you convert it to the idea of a spiritual feast, right? There's some old leftovers that the king momentarily became distracted by these and started picking at them. While focused on these, he let loose his grip slightly on Zion's arm, and she determined to make her escape. She quickly got free of this king's clutches and ran as fast as she could into a nearby room. As she tried to bolt the door shut, the latch became stuck in her hands, and her hands started to drip with perfumed oil. What does perfumed oil signify? It signifies a covenant connection or relationship. With who? Well, it's perfumed oil, so it's, it has a good scent, which indicates it's a positive thing in this case. The king man had almost caught up to her, so seeing that the door wouldn't lock, Zion ran for her life and to, pro to protect the child a second time. Zion made it to another room before the king man could catch her. Now think, think of the first line of defense and the second line of defense, and who that, or what, what that might be. The fact that she has perfumed oil on her hands means that her hands are, are clean. It means that she's keeping the terms of the covenant. That her relationship with God is intact. Yet he allows her to go through the persecution for the reasons I explained before. But all the while, persecution and persecution, hounding, even unto death. This time, through, though her hands were still dripping with oil, the bolt on the door worked quickly and perfectly. 
With the lock now locked and the evil king unable to get in, Zion turned and looked where she was. Zion was in a large white marriage chamber. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? Those have been to, your, to the temple. The king man screamed through the door, vile obscenities, and what he would do to her and her baby once he got in the room. He proceeded to try to bang down the door. Zion knew that the door would hold only for so long and that she wasn't out of danger because the king man was going to go all the way, even into the most sacred place, right? The Antichrist forces make their way right into the temples. That's predicted. The, the Antichrist seats himself in the Holy of Holies. That's predicted. Read Paul. She looked around the room and saw a window. Aha. And as she pulled back the white and billowy curtains, there was a veil. So in the midst of her agony and distress, she exercised faith to do something, to act. And what she do? She pulled back the curtains, so it wasn't obvious what she should do at first, and there was the veil. And what does that signify? Zion tore through the veil and climbed through the window to the outside. Well, that's not politically correct, to climb through a window, is it? So the Lord's people are not politically correct, you know? Not in Isaiah, not anywhere. And that's why they look down upon for that. And Zion ran and ran and ran, clutching her precious baby to a heart wrapped in her garments. Zion fled into a thick and dense forest and hid herself safely with the child. I woke from the dream at 4 a.m., 4.20 a.m., and the Lord told me to write. What does ran and ran and ran mean? Do you remember when Moses talked to Pharaoh and said, let, let my people go. We want to go three days' journey into the wilderness. Well, Pharaoh knew what that meant. They're out of there. They're not coming back. When Lehi left Jerusalem, what did he do? He took three days' journey into the wilderness. What did that mean? Well, he was out of there. He was not coming back. So she ran and ran and ran. Where did she go? Well, to the forest, where a place had been prepared for her for three and a half years, as the book of Revelation would say. You see how this, this amazing dream, a vision, just, you know, agrees with so many scriptures. It kind of encapsulates so much. And yet, you know, she would definitely be persecuted for that. Visions of glory is blacklisted. It's, it's being judged as such by the same people. Birth pangs of the Messiah. Here it is. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. We've done this already before in connection with the servant. Now we're discussing the woman. And the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. So she is righteous. She's a righteous person. And she's the woman Zion. She's in Isaiah. The woman Zion is the one who gives birth to the male child in Isaiah 66 and to a nation of children. God's people Zion who in the Book of Mormon context are the House of Israel. Jews, Lamanites of today, and ten tribes. And she being with child, travailed by birth, in pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, or you might say the equivalent of the king man in this other vision, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered, to devour her child as soon as it was born. And of course, the birth means his, the Lord's calling him. That's in chapter 9 of Isaiah. 
and she brought forth a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up into God and to his throne. Because the child too is persecuted. And the servant is marred and then he's healed. And how is he healed? We shall see. I'm sure this prophecy is what is the, is the uh, solution or the, the secret to how he's healed. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared for, of God that they might feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought and prevailed not. Nor was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So yes, he's thrown out of heaven, but he comes to earth. And he's on the earth deceiving and deceiving and deceiving. And in, in Isaiah, he's the Pharaoh king of Egypt. The same in the book of Ezekiel. So he's political. And I would, you know, he's the king of Egypt. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. You accused him before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's the secret. You overcome the evil, and then it all turns around. That's why the kingdom of, his, of, of heaven has now come. When we do our part and overcome the evil, then the kingdom of heaven comes. And they love not their lives unto death. So you don't fear the evil. If you need to die, die. I mean, you get to the point where, what does it matter? Never die. Because if it's God's will, it's, it's to your highest good. It's to the particular segment of progress that you can make in this mortality that will get you where you need to be. That's the very best thing that you could do on the earth. So if, you know, if martyrdom is part of it, fine. Be okay with that. It ought to be, it ought to be part of your, your a, a pre-decision. You, know, you ought to have already decided that, hey, if I need to die, I'll die. What does it matter? And then, if it happens, it won't be so hard. Or you will not fear so much. Because you know everything that's involved. It's a way of, ex you know, that God exalts people. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, and the, and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has but a short time. So the devil is here on the earth. And he is deceiving the nations. And how is he going to do that? You mean he's a mortal being? Or does he possess a mortal being? I think you'll know when it happens. I think we might have seen a type and shadow or precedent for that in Hitler. I mean, he didn't start off a raving lunatic. But once he became possessed, he was. And people just fell for it. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength or empowerment and the kingdom of our God and power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. He accused before our God day and night and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony because the testimony is important. To be valiant in the testimony of Jesus is what distinguishes celestial people or people in a celestial category in DNC 76. And they love not their lives unto death, which is part of the equation. 
Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has but a short time. He's going to do his thing, and then where is he going to go? Well, to the bottomless pit, as you read in Revelation. And when the dragon saw that he was cast to the, to the earth, he persecuted the woman who brought forth the male child. So he's specifically zeroing in on her. Out of everything else that he's doing, she's his main target. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Well, the woman ran into the forest, or the woman runs into the forest's wilderness, where she's protected. How? She's given wings on a great eagle, of a great eagle, symbolic of that she receives divine protection. How is she protected? By the cloud of glory that surrounds her, at least those who prove to be of the woman Zion. There may be an interim period where people have to prove that. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood. That really is a key word there because the flood is because in Isaiah, the king of Assyria is a new flood. His alliance of nations that conquers the world is like a new flood that conquers the world, that overruns the world. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the flood the dragon cast out of his mouth. And floods, of course, are also armies or rivers of people. So it seems like he sends a huge army after her, and the earth swallows them. You read that in, in Spencer's book, Bridges of Glory. You see examples of that. I don't know how people don't make the connection. There are so many connections in Spencer's book with the scriptures. And they would fight against that and say it's blacklisted and they wouldn't want to hit any part of it. What are, they, what are they doing by saying that, by rejecting that truth? They're fulfilling 2 Nephi 28, where it says they, reject, they, they, they subscribe to precepts of men and reject the truth of God. They're so into the precepts of men that they can't, they can't entertain any other ideas and what they already know. And, the, and, and to be, you know, swallowing, you know, the earth opening its mouth and swallowing people, we saw that in the Sinai wilderness where that happened uh, under Moses. And the dragon was uh, um, angry with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Jesus. Yeah, well, where are they? They're not in the wilderness. So where are they? They're still home, thinking that they're going to somehow escape this. So the celestials go into the wilderness, the elect, that's in Isaiah, the sons and daughters of God, the elect category. <clears throat> the wicked are destroyed, that's the celestial category. And the terrestrials are the ones he's going off after now. They keep the commandments of God, but they're not valiant. They didn't keep the commandment of searching Isaiah diligently, among others, other commandments. And so... I'm just throwing that in, you know. Um, and, and so they're not, they're not worthy to go into the wilderness and be, be protected directly by the cloud of glory. But they may be protected indirectly if they then get their act together and start repenting. And then they may end up on an elect level also by the time it's all over. So that too is for their good. You know what I'm saying? So the persecution at the hands of the dragon by those who are keeping the commandments of God, is good for them. It's if they will use it as part of their repentance process, because that's what 
the covenant curses are supposed to do. They're intended to bring people back to a covenant relationship with God. Isaiah 66. <clears throat> Before she's in labor, she gives birth. Before her ordeal overtakes her, she delivers a son. Who has heard the like or seen such things? Can the earth labor by the day and the nation be born at once? For as soon as she was in labor, Zion gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to a crisis and not bring on birth, says Jehovah? When it is I who caused the birth, shall I hinder it? What is verse 9 all about? Because there are people who are opposing the woman Zion and her child. They're saying this is not of God. They're part of the persecuting uh, king man. They're part of the, the dragon act. They've allied themselves with the dragon and say, oh, this is not of God. And so this gives us the right to persecute you. It's an interesting mindset. It's the, it's the mindset of the secret combinations in the Book of Mormon. Remember? Their rights were trampled on. Their rights? So that justifies you to, to commit horrible abominations and murders? Uh, whose rights are being trampled on now? Do they see that? Of course not. They don't see the disconnect. So they're fighting God's work, the work, the great and marvelous work, which is to bring to pass the um, restoration of his people, the house of Israel, the fulfillment of his covenants with them. Isaiah 45, another one. Woe or, or curse, cursed, are those who say to the father, what have you begotten? Or to the woman, what have you born? They're arguing with God about his work. And they say, as elsewhere in the Book of Mormon, oh, the Lord has already done his work. I know he hasn't. The work is not the restoration of the, of the priesthood and the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith. By definition, in the Book of Mormon, in Isaiah, is the restoration of the house of Israel. So they're going to fight the restoration of the house of Israel because they think the work, the great and marvelous work, has already been done. Interesting logic. And what's it based on? It's based on the misinterpretation of the scriptures, which they have not searched to see what the scriptures are actually saying. Thus said Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel, their maker, will you ask me for signs concerning my children or dictate to me about the deeds of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I with my hand suspended the heavens, appointing all their host. So he now is describing himself as the creator of heaven and earth, just as he does when he talks about the servant in Isaiah. There's half a dozen instances or so in the book of Isaiah where when the Lord introduces a servant, he, he introduces him as one who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. So you better listen. He's lending his whole authority to the servant, as it were, and also to this, to what the woman and the, and the father have borne. It's interesting because we have a chiasm here. And the father is um, in parallel with the maker. The father and the woman give birth, right? Verse 10, what have you begotten? What have you born? And verse 11, the maker, the Holy One of Israel, their maker, is, they ask him concerning his children or the deeds of his hands. So who is the father there and who is the woman? God. God is. So there you actually have an evidence of mother God, the woman. In fact, woman is Isha. Isha is also a word for wife in Hebrew. 
That's my wife. So they're fighting this. At that point, they're all out in a fight against what the Lord is doing. They've completely apostatized. They've joined the great whore of all the earth, which persecutes God's people. Oh no, that can never happen to us. Well, these are the scriptures. You believe them or not, it's up to you. When I read Visions of Glory and I saw what Spencer had seen of the Tahitians, I knew in the Book of Mor from the Book of Mormon that that was also happening to the Nephites who had apostatized. And we'll read that in a minute. Because apostasy, that's where apostasy goes. Ultimately, it goes there. When I wrote my book, The Last Days, I had horrendous opposition to it. Because it was my second book with Desert Book. Um, because I had talked in one of the, in one of the sections of the, in my chapter on modern idolatry about the satanic cult, or rather nature cult. And I knew nothing about satanic cult at that time, uh, or nature cults. I was just simply borrowing from Isaiah what he had to say about it, which we'll discuss in a minute. And then I was contacted by, by two psychologists, one in Logan, one in Salt Lake, independently, and a caseworker in Burley, Idaho, who were depro deprogramming satanic cult victims. And they said to me, they called me out of the blue and said, um, you have exposed the cult, which I knew nothing about any cult, in your book, The Last Days, and they're going to kill you. And I thought, no, come on. And uh, so they said, we're going to do a strategy, let them know that we know, then they'll back off. And so later on, when some actions were taken against me, the cult, they reported back to me, took credit for my defamation. And so there, I, I, I'm not speaking from ignorance when I'm talking about these things. I'm speaking from personal experience with it. And you can take that how you, how, you, how you wish, you know. So to me, this is very close to home. And I don't go about bad-mouthing anybody about it. And sometimes you are accused of the very thing that people themselves are. Um, that's an old communist trick, you know that. They were always accusing the West of what all the, the machinations and conspiracies that they were up to, so that we wouldn't think of them as being that. But, but that was what was happening to me also. And so I had to go through the very process that I've been describing to you from these scriptures that many have gone through before. And I'm not in, anybody special, but I know what's coming about those servants who are going to be persecuted that Isaiah is talking about, when those brethren will exclude, it says in Isaiah 66.5, those who are zealous for God's word. And I wasn't the only one at that time. There were four to 5,000 people ex excommunicated from the church in the early 19, uh, 1990s. And I heard that from Elder Packer's own mouth in our state conference in Salem. And many people went through awful times Four to five thousand. Isaiah 57. So here it is in Isaiah, speaking of God's covenant people. As for you, come here, you children of the sorceress, offspring of adulterer and harlot. So this is when, when this cult 
gets so powerful and gets more adherence and it comes through pornography and through all the things that Spencer sees in his, in his book. And gradually people just drift into this without even realizing it, justifying things, calling black white, white black as Isaiah says, and uh, making anything that's wrong seem right. It's all relative. At whose expense do you amuse yourselves because they're persecuting the elect or the righteous people? At whom do you open wide the mouth and stick out the tongue? Surely you're born of sin, a spurious brood who burn with lust among the oaks under every burgeoning, every burgeoning tree, slayers of children in the gullies under the crags of rocks. Now, these psychologists had me meet people who, whom they were deprogramming, two sets of them. And what I learned from there firsthand was the very things that were describing Bishop Glenn Pace's citing bishop report uh, to the church strengthening membership committee where he had interviewed about 60 people who were being deprogrammed also from the satanic cult. So, and that's what they do. And they do many other things that are too graphic, as Spencer says in his book, to even talk about. And things that you can't imagine. They do them. And he asked the Lord, Spencer did, to close the vision because it was so graphic and so gross. Among the slippery stones of the ravines shall be your fate, because they do the rituals there. They have their favorite places. They indeed are your lots. To them you pour out libations and make offerings. Offerings of what? Of other people's blood. Of infants' blood. How shall I be appeased of such things? On a lofty mountain you've made prominent your bed. This is the harlot now. The Lord's own people, as Isaiah says in chapter 1, who've turned into a harlot. You were a city, of, a city of righteousness, now there's murderers, and you've turned into a harlot. Chapter 1 of Isaiah. On the lofty mountains you made prominent your bed, and there you ascend to offer sacrifices. Behind doors and facades you've put up your emblems, and have exposed yourself to others than I. Mounting your bed you have laid it wide open, and you bargain with those with whom you love to lie, your hand on their nakedness. So now they're giving holy to lust, given over to the lust. Paul talks about this. We've quoted it. The Book of Mormon talks about it. It's everywhere in the scriptures. Oh no, that can't happen to us. This is saying that it is. You bathe with oil for the king. It should be a singular oil for the king. And increase your perfumes. There's the oil because the oil is, pertains to a covenant. You've covenanted with the other side. Who's the king? The king man. The political. The antichrist. And increase your perfumes and send your solicitors, solicitors far abroad and debase yourself to the depth. It's the whole pornographic culture that's permeating our society now. I'm beginning to. It'll spread over this whole society as it did in Sodom and Gomorrah. Was Isaiah calls God's people Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 1 others. Though wearied by your excessive ways, you have not admitted despair, you have found livelihood, and therefore have not slackened. There's money to be made, guys, in porn. Let's get, on the act, get in on the act, right? That's what they say to themselves. Yet on whose account are you uneasy and apprehensive that you pretend and do not mention me? Well, these are God's people, but do they mention the Lord? Hardly. Maybe just on Sundays, 
if it's convenient to them, nor even give me a thought, because he's far from the thoughts of their heart. Chapter 29 of Isaiah. Is it because I have so long kept silent that you no longer fear me? But I will expose your fornication. He keeps silent to see what we're going to do. He tests us by all the evils, whether we're going to rise above them. But I will expose your fornication and the wantonness of your exploits when you cry out in distress that those who flock to you save you. A wind shall carry all of them off. A vapor shall take them away. They're going to be converted into chaos, chaotic elements, into non-entities. They're going to revert to dust, as it says of the heart of Babylon in Isaiah 47. But they who seek refuge in me shall possess the earth and receive an inheritance in my holy mountain. Refuge in him from what? Well, from the persecutions of these people, of course. They seek refuge in him, and they're the ones who inherit the earth. But not until they go through that. Visions of glory. What I was showing was the history of the spiritual and non-spiritual practices of the ancient Tahitians. I was showing that initially they were a very enlightened, spirit-filled people. Well, because they were Nephites. They were, you know, migrations of Nephites to the Pacific Isles. And they got away from the, all the wars in Zarahemla and the lands there. They sought a peaceful place. And first, that worked. Even innocent and undefiled, they knew about Jesus Christ, his role and mission, which had come to them from holy men and women who had established their cultural heritage. Well, this book is not meant for LDS reading only. This, is, this book is going out there to many non-Mormons and bringing many to a much more spiritual state. It's, I've heard even of conversions to our church or gospel because of this book, Visions of Glory. How about that? I saw that their understanding deteriorated over the years as their founders died, kind of like the death of the apostles in the New Testament. And those who believed became fewer and fewer in number. They sank to the most gross and graphic forms of human torture, debauchery, sexual perversions, and spiritual darkness imaginable. Well, we saw that he asked the vision to be closed. That's in the book. And so we don't need to read that. Now we go to Moroni at the end of the Nephite history. Notwithstanding this, this great abomination of the Lamanites, it doth not exceed that of our people in Morientum. For behold, many of the daughters of the Lamanites have they taken prisoners, and after depriving them of that which was most dear and precious above all things, which is chastity and virtue. And this is what the cult does. They turn everything sacred into the profane. They will turn sacred ordinances into the most profane things. When the Spaniards came to the New World, what were they doing? Sacrificing human victims. They had turned the sacred, into the sacred offerings into these profane offerings. And after they had done this thing, they did murder them in the most cruel manner, torturing their bodies even unto death because of the hardness of their hearts. And you know, you look anywhere on YouTube or anywhere about documented things going on in nature cults or whatever, and this is what they're doing today. This is what they're doing today in the most prominent places of this country. Prominent, you know, levels of power. Oh, no, no, that can't be happening. 
Well, are you putting your head in the sand? Then, because it's there, just you know, find it. It's there. And after they had done this, etc., because that's what they do. They torture their victims as well, and cause them the most excruciating pain. You can read about satanic victims who participated in these cults personally, individually. They saw it all, and they reported. It's on the internet. And they devour their flesh like unto wild beasts because of the hardness of their heart, and they do it for a token of bravery. They really get to that point that they are so into that that they can't, they crave this. It's like a lifeline to them. The evil spirits feed off of it. And so they keep offering these victims to, to Satan, and that, then they are empowered of him to do all to, to exercise power over men. And so it was this way then, and it's this way today. Oh, my beloved son, how can a people like this that are without civilization and only a few years have passed away and they were a civil and delightsome people? So now the consequences. The gospel turns away from us, from those who are doing these things. Matthew 22. And Jesus answered and spake to them in parables. Well, let's just, um, let's just take a few minutes break there. Matthew 22. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who made a marriage for his son. And he sent forth his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, but they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the rest took his servants and treated them spitefully and slew them. <clears throat> I mean, think of... Think of Think of all the scriptures we've just read and how this fits in with that. And when the king heard of it, he was wroth and sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. <clears throat> then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited weren't worthy. Go therefore into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And this goes back to what we were reading earlier when the Gentiles reject the gospel. It goes back to the house of Israel. And some of them are not in good shape, but they will get their act together by the time Zion is established. Excuse me, by the time the Lord comes, that Zion will be established. The same as with Enoch's Zion. He went out to preach to people who are wicked and wickedness, full of wickedness and abominations, and he brought out of them a people of God called Zion. Isaiah 29. My Lord says, Because these people approach me with the mouth and pay me homage with their lips, while their heart remains far from me, their piety toward me consisting of commandments of men learned by rote, precepts of men. Therefore it is that I shall again astound these people with wonder upon wonder, rendering void the knowledge of their sages and the intelligence of their wise men insignificant. Now this is translated as the greater marvel or a marvelous work and a wonder in the King James translation. 
but it actually doesn't use the noun. It uses a combination of two verbs. And so it's hard, it's very hard to translate. And then that marvelous work in a wonder becomes the greater marvelous work in kind of a redaction of that in the Book of Mormon. And so this is where this is this is where the greater marvelous work is first introduced in the scriptures. In the book of Isaiah, when the learned people are basically, you know, not with it. They're into gaining tenure in college and publishing articles that talk about paltry things. The sparks of men, as we read in one, chat, one passage from Isaiah, rather than the, the light in, in, its full, in, the full, in its full splendor. So, now, the person who had the vision of the daughter of Zion also had this vision. So, this kind of shows the transition from one to the other also, from the Gentiles to the house of Israel, from those who were invited to those who were gathered from, you know, run-of-the-mill looking people. And, and there are other analogies as well besides those. I had been sent into a certain Jewish community for exactly one year in man's time to observe their way of life. This kind of reminds me of, you know, when the servants of the Lord are called to go out and graft in the natural branches, but they have to prepare the way, they have to convert spiritually those people whom they're going to graft in, whom they bring back physically in an exile. So it's a process. I had become part of their family and community and I worked with them daily as they taught me and I taught them and we shared deep spiritual beliefs and ways of life. In other words, they were open to learning. She was <clears throat> and so were they. In the process of this year, we formed a great choir and together we wrote a new song. Well, in the book of Psalms, we see that songs of praise or songs of salvation are the spontaneous reaction of people who've who go through the trials and then praise God for delivering them, who are purified and sanctified and are released from their iniquities so that miracles can happen. And then they praise God. And, and so this reminds me of that. A new song. A new song is also spoken of in Isaiah, which we'll come to in just a moment. The new song was spectacular. In other words, it was not of this world, so to speak. It was vibrant, joyous, and living. It was in praise of the Messiah and his marvelous work among the children of men and the song of his salvation. There was a, a section in this new song where the shofars would sound, which is interpreted or translated as trumpets in the Old Testament, three of them. And three, why three? Perhaps because there are three main branches of the house of Israel, the Jews, Lehi's descendants, and the ten tribes. It was truly spiritual, spiritually and physically invigorating or innervating. Every person in the choir, as well as myself, was touched on a deep, transcending level as we bore testimony through song with all hearts united as one. You'll get this in near-death experiences. And I think that Spencer has that in his book, doesn't he? Where he participates in such a song, and it's on a transcendent level. It's not, as it were, of, of the current glory of this world. I came back into my own country with this choir of the Lord's Chosen to share what I had learned that we might sing this new song with others in the hope that they too would be touched and be united as we were. 
So in other words, they're almost like they're being grafted back into the olive tree. I prepared a fireside at the Latter-day Saint Chapel. As I stood up to speak, I saw that the whole building was brimful of people, brothers and sisters of the church. The chapel was packed, the foyer was full, the entire recreational hall and stage was overflowing. Everyone had come in their Sunday finery. <clears throat> I stood at the pulpit and introduced the choir and briefly explained what I had been doing for the past year. Then I spoke about the new song these Jewish people and I had created together that we desired greatly to sing this song as the opening music of the meeting. It, I turned into the chorister of the choir and as we began to sing there was a united feeling pulsing through us as we praised the living God. You know, this has been seen in vision. It's kind of close to home to me, but there are those who've seen terrestrial choirs singing and dancing in perfect coordination and harmony without any preconceived script or music that they were following in perfect movement of dance and harmony completely spontaneously in such a new song. And that pertains, as far as I could understand, to the glory of the terrestrial kingdom. It was, powerful, it was a powerful song. As we came to the part of the song where the shofar sounded, all of a sudden the whole congregation started singing, Come, come, ye saints, in loud unison. What? As this otherworldly song is being sung by people, Jews now who've come to join, who've now accepted the gospel and have risen to a high spiritual level, they come to where the saints are and they start singing, Come, come, ye saints, in loud unison, uh, while the other song is going on? The singing of the congregation began to overcome the singing of the new song. Both songs didn't match well together musically. I became confused as to what I was singing and couldn't discern the new song amidst all the noise of the congregation singing their well-beloved traditional hymn. I turned to face the congregation and I raised my hands above my head and called out for them to please stop singing as we were trying to sing them a new song that we had especially prepared for them to hear and join in with. Half the members walked out of the building because they wanted to sing their familiar song and not the song of a strange people. One of the Jewish men sitting in the front row of the choir was offended that the members walked out and he rebuked them as they did so. This reminds me of the whole paradigm of Isaiah, the whole paradigm of these scriptures that speak about the end time is a different paradigm than the ones that's current. It's a completely different paradigm. And there are people who cannot handle it, so they don't want to know about it, and they'll persecute you because you have that paradigm, or you're growing in or learning about that paradigm. They stick hard and fast to their old paradigm and will defend it with their lives almost, as it were. You know what I'm saying? So here come a people who are now on an exalted level to join them, to join with them, and to help bring them up to that level also, and they, they start clinging to their old paradigm that has never brought them up to that level. And they insist that that's, that's the way it should be, right? They try to drown out the others. You see the symbolism there. I began to share the spiritual experience of my time with the Jewish community and the things I had observed from these people. I shared how we could learn certain things from them. The other half, like for example, the manner of the Jews, 
The other half of the congregation walked out, that's the second half, because of the belief that there was nothing we can learn further that doesn't come from the authorized institution itself. Like the tree that's full of fruit, but none of it any good. In the end scenario, in the end scenario before the natural branches are grafted in. Only six male missionaries were left sitting in the empty pews. They were not Caucasian, they looked Mexican or South American. They stayed a while and then left also saying they had a work to do. I called out to them that we had a dinner prepared for after the fireside. The Jewish people had prepared a huge feast of traditional food with wine, lamb and corn, the most amazing lamb and corn I've ever seen. Half of the missionaries returned with some people they had brought with them. I ran out onto the streets and invited anyone and everyone to come and join in this huge feast that had been prepared. Many people came in plain clothes, simple people, men, women, and children. Now this is a personal vision to this woman, and yet at every point, it just, you know, agrees with the scriptures that we've been reading. Both of these visions, or dreams. It's like an added witness that we're getting today of what the scriptures are actually saying that we have to be pointed to almost with the two before because we haven't been studying them. We haven't been reading those things. And now people are coming, you know, shouting it from the housetops, as it were. As we shared the fruit around that we ate in the chapel, we rearranged the pews into a large square and ate it in the chapel. Everything tasted better than I had ever tasted before. Everything was plentiful and delicious of the finest quality I'd ever beheld. Everyone commented on the lamb and the beautiful corn. The corn was so large, the kernels were the fattest, sweetest, juiciest ever eaten by any of us. <laughs> it reminds me of Spencer's vision where fruits just go larger and better. And also by any of us, because these were humble people. They didn't have feasts, you know, like the wealthy people do every day. We had a wonderful time celebrating together at this bountiful feast, praising God. Apart from the choir, we knew none of the other people who came in from the street, but that didn't matter as we had a powerful connection of brotherhood between all who were there sharing this feast. We were singing the new song together. Pretty amazing. Here's the new song in Isaiah 42. Sing to Jehovah a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. Let the sea roar and all that lives in it the isles and all they who inhabit them. Let the desert and its cities raise their voice and the villages where Kedar dwells. Let the inhabitants of Silla sing for joy and cry out from the tops of the mountains. Or let them give glory to Jehovah and the isles speak out in praise of him. Who are these people singing? Well, in chapters 25, 26, and 27, and 24, there are these five or six songs of salvation. There are people who are delivered in the end time through direct divine intervention by the Lord. And he looks out for them. And where they come, come from? They come from the ends of the earth, from the isles, the deserts, the villages, from the mountains and rocks. And also, as we saw in, where was it, Jeremiah, out of the holes of the rocks, right? Jeremiah said that, just as Spencer saw. 25. In this mountain will Jehovah of hosts prepare a sumptuous feast for all peoples, a feast of leavened cakes, succulent and delectable, of mature wines, well refined. In this mountain he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples, the shroud that shrouds all nations, by abolishing death forever. We're going to go from mortality to immortality, in other words, at least to a translated state. 
in the millennial age. My Lord Jehovah will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will move because of mortality. Mortality causes grief, agony, it's hell. It's a telestial world, a telestial glory, which is the least of all the glories. The tears from all faces, he will remove the reproach of his people from throughout the earth. Jehovah has spoken. Which reproach and which people? Whose tears? Well, who's been persecuted by the rest of humanity all these years? The Jews, of course, humanity's scapegoats. The Lamanites, and by analogy with them, the Ten Tribes. There are people, communities in the North Countries who have been horribly persecuted through many centuries, and more particularly in the age of communism, and will be again. There are ethnic communities everywhere that the Lord has, and these seem to be always the victims of persecution, wherever you find them. In China, there are ethnic communities who are being persecuted by the authorities, always by the authorities. Well, how can he abolish death? Because if he abolishes death, that means that mortality is gone. And so if, he, if the person transgresses after that, then he could cause death to come into the world again because that's how death came into the world in the first place, through Adam, through his transgression. So how can he abolish death now? Because now he has a people, a Zion people, who are not going to transgress and bring death back again. Adam and Eve were originally in that state. They could transgress. It's always an option, right? 54.1 Sing, O barren woman who did not give birth, break into jubilant song, you who are not in labor. The children of the deserted wife shall outnumber those of the espouse, says Jehovah. You know, this was in Gospel Doctrine lesson, this last Sunday. And um, how was it interpreted? Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. That was verse 2, right? Of Isaiah 54. Was that verse 2 or one of the next verses? So, first of all, the subject was got wrong. The subject is the new wife, not the current wife. So it's the barren woman who did not give birth, the natural lineages of the house of Israel who were ostracized and persecuted down the ages for thousands of years. They are received back into the covenant at the time the current wife is divorced, is rejected because she becomes an adulteress. So lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes applies to who? To the new wife as she expands in throughout the millennium because it's an end time context and it's a millennial context. It's not now. It's grossly misinterpreted, but that's what we do. We'll put any wild interpretation on something if it, and just prove, you know, prove that we are, that, that our belief system is correct. It's, it's a horrible misinterpretation and this kind of thing is just promoted and promoted. So how can, the, how can the tree not be full of bad fruit? Where is the good fruit? Who gets it right? And that's it. <laughs> so we ended up on a, on a good note because the good note is that the house of Israel is restored and who, bring, who restores them? We do. The servants of the Lord are the ones who give birth to the nation. We help them give birth. 
we're all Moseses, new Moses, latter-day Davids. We're all saviors in one form or another, brothers of Jared. Um, we are all sons of Messiah, Helamans. All those heroes are types and shadows of the 144,000. And that is beautiful. We have many examples that we can draw on to, um, to look to. Okay, we have a few minutes time for questions. Now, remember to be circumspect in your questioning, right? We're keeping this somewhat at a distance, right? So, don't ask me to pinpoint things specifically because I won't go there. You've seen the scriptures and what they say. And that's all I'm interested in conveying. And a little bit of my personal experience to, to throw in there because, because I have some personal knowledge of it. Thank you. Yes? Okay, you have um, a horrible misinterpretation of, of Isaiah, you know, the, the woman. Yes. Yes. Becomes then the new wife. Yes. And everybody exited the church building in the dream. Yes. So what I'm getting is we, within the church there's a lot of misinterpretation, but there's still the gospel priesthood yes. necessarily for conversion. But yes. we've got a lot of knowledge. So That's right. That's why Jesus says, whatever they command you to do, that do and observe. But don't do as they do. The truth is still there, but they're not do living the truth themselves, you know. So search it ourselves to find the truth that yeah. that we don't misinterpret what's already been misinterpreted. Yes. The hard <laughs> right. yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I'm sorry that I, I can't repeat the questions always because they're multifaceted and I, I, uh, <laughs> not sure that I can remember every word that you say. Go ahead. I would just steer you to um, Ezekiel 34 and, and Jeremiah 23 about the shepherds. Yeah. Uh, no, that doesn't tally with what scriptures say. It's a person. Yeah, it's a person. The male child is a person. It's in Isaiah. That's the deliverer, like Moses. And then when he comes forth and is empowered, then the nation is born in that sequence. And that's in Revelation. That's in... It's in Zenos's alley of the olive tree, um, where the one servant is put in charge, or the angel from the east in the book of Revelation, or when the one servant comes on the scene in Isaiah, then other servants come on the scene, and they together, um, as savers on Mount Zion, deliver the Lord's covenant people, the natural lineage of the house of Israel, the house of Israel people, the former wife. Question? So the restoration of the house of Israel, is that done through the servants delivering the elect on the eve of destruction? Is that how it happens? The restoration of the house of Israel is the restitution of all things, or the restoration of all things. Um, that's done by the Elias of the end time, which is the servant. And physically delivering God's people is part of it, but as people's, God's people, they, spiritually apostatized anciently, were physically scattered around the world, in the end time, as I mentioned before, reverses itself. They have to be spiritually converted, brought up to the level of the Church of the Firstborn, DNC 77, and then they qualify to go into uh, becoming 
the house of Israel that's restored and, and gathered to Zion and her stakes. Does that f answer your question? Or kind of? The what? Repairers of the breach. Um, I don't have my translation in front of me. Can you pass me that book? 58 what? Yeah, that, that's the King James translation, yeah. Uh, my translation says, they who came out of you, that's, that's lineage, will rebuild the ancient ruins and you will restore the foundations of generations ago. You shall be called a rebuilder of fallen walls, a restorer of streets, of streets for resettlement. So, I don't know, some people talk about this breach, but... It could have that, uh, yeah, that metaphorical connotation, sure. Things usually do. Yeah, but I don't know of the breach specifically. Yeah. I know that Isaiah does talk about the reuniting of Joseph and Judah. Um, I'll have to go back to the Hebrew and see what the word is. Sorry, I don't have it in front of me. I should bring my Hebrew. Uh, Okay, other questions? Just the people that were being deprogrammed, were they members of the church? I mean, is this sort of stuff going on within the Yeah, they were members of the church, yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the complaints was of them, after they graphically portrayed all the things, kind of things that Spencer saw, was that nobody took them seriously. Their first line of defense was no line of defense. There, I just answered the question. <laughs> I've said it. <coughs> right. Right. Collectively, we apostatize, but individually, we don't. Or we don't need to. And we've discussed this in class already a number of times. And it is that what is the role of Ephraim? Ephraim is to be a savior to his brethren. Well, who does that? Well, the kings and queens of the Gentiles, or the servants of the Lord in Zenos' allegory, or the 144,000 in servants in the book of Revelation. They are the saviors on Mount Zion. They are the ones who minister the gospel, the restored gospel that Joseph Smith restored and other things that we will be restored to the house of Israel to bring them up to the level of, of God's elect. We do that. 
those are the two choices we have as Gentiles. That's why you always see the dichotomy between Gentiles who harden their hearts and Gentiles who repent. The ones who repent are the ones who get their act together and fulfill that role. That is our role. These, we're not, these are not talking about political kings and queens of the Gentiles. They're, they're spiritual kings and queens under the terms of the Davidic covenant as King Hezekiah exemplified in his day, which was a spiritual role that a political, actually a political king performed. But it's a spiritual act of being saviors to, to others. That is our role. And, and so people get horribly confused. They say, well, we're the house of Israel. Uh, by whose definition, sir? Well, it's in the scriptures. Where? You know, show me. Show me the Book of Mormon where it says it. It doesn't. Only after we perform that role, then we are we numbered among them as the house of Israel. Not until then. Well, we're called children of Israel in DNC 103, 15 through 20, when we go into Exodus, back to Jackson County. Yes, but that's, that's a DNC definition in that context. That's not Isaiah's or the Book of Mormon's definition. You have to get your definition straight, like, this, like the two wives. We're just assuming in the Gospel Doctrine Manual and other places that we are that woman who, 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 you know, who expands the side of her tent and has all these stakes out there. No, we're not. It's the second wife that does that. The current wife is divorced. Well, she divorces herself. That's what it's at. You saw it. You saw it in chapter 59, 57 of Isaiah. She turns into a harlot. She has another covenant lord now. So we do it to ourselves. So we're our own judges, ultimately. All right. We'll end up there. Thank you for coming. Something to think about. Keep these things in your heart. Don't share them with anybody. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing you want to be talking about. But it's part of our scriptures. It's part of the holistic part of our scriptures. That's why I talk about it. This concludes Lecture 7, Upon My House Shall It Begin. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.